Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Welcome, one and all to our official election 2016 post-mortem. Emphasis on the mortem. So let's remember, my first rule of political thermodynamics is this. An object in fucked up motion tends to stay in fucked up motion until a force sufficient to the task arrests it. That force did not materialize in this election. We're going to try to get started down the path to explaining why that was. Meanwhile, the polling industry spent the bulk of election night coming to the numbing realization that the mechanics of their enterprise need to be newly recalibrated. We are joined once again by HuffPost pollsters Ariel Edwards-Levy, who will endeavor to explain what went so badly wrong Tuesday night. Additionally, for every winner, there is a loser, in this case Hillary Clinton, whose political fortunes rose and fell in dramatic fashion over the course of one evening. We will take a look at the remarkable circumstances that led to her having to concede this election and what can be drawn from a speech she never anticipated having to give. Finally, it's not too soon to start looking ahead to the transfer of power and the transfer of policy. This week, we look at something Donald Trump will inherit from Obama, our ongoing foreign policy commitments in the Middle East. Specifically, we'll ask why the Obama administration has been helping Saudi Arabia bomb the hell out of Yemen and what the Trump administration, if anything, tends to do about it. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ariel Edwards-Levy, and Lauren Weber. Here's what happened first. Hi, guys. Um, so... That happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. Oops. Hi, welcome to the So That Happened podcast, which is now sort of like carved in granite and covered in blood, those words. Um, my name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, where I guess I could have done a lot more eating of the press to keep this from happening, but failed. Um, I'm here with Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And uh, Arthur Delaney. Hey. Um. So, uh, they elected Donald Trump, man. Yeah, we were so wrong. We thought it wouldn't happen. Yeah. I, I don't agree that the uh, it's the media's fault. Um, I, I like not getting blamed for things generally, but yeah, I I actually think you can look at uh, you can look at the cable news coverage and fault it. You know, him talking for like forty five minutes uninterrupted over and over again. But I do think print media, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, here at Huffington Post. There was a lot of really solid reporting on Donald Trump. I think voters knew knew enough about him to to cast an informed vote, and they did it anyway. Yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. think anything the media did can be blamed. I mean, I, not even Facebook and its enabling of tons of completely false, weird, fake news is really to blame. I mean, people just wanted this guy. They they got tired of Obama and decency. And they wanted this really angry, rude guy. Yeah. They wanted him. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that 
the fact of the matter is, is that the media outside of maybe cable news and can kind of just say cable news is garbage, no matter what they're covering. It, yeah, doesn't, it, really, a, yeah. it really doesn't matter. Like it's, 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 it's sad that cable news was, um, you know, part of the bulwark against preventing democracy from falling into the hands of a fascist. Um, but they were always going to grin themselves to death on that one. What was going to, anyway. I mean, what they, if they had had more mean chirons yeah. on the bottom of the screen, if only they had done that, we could have tricked people into not voting for the guy they yeah. wanted to vote for. If yeah. only, uh, if only the, the media had done more mean stories, people would have been like, hmm, I've, this is the 21st Trump story that I, that I saw. You know, this time I really, I really am fed up with him. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also cool with not being blamed for things, though I've done a, probably 48 solid hours of self-excoriation. I'll spare people the gory details on that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we've done on this show uh, is worry about the extent to which the Clinton campaign was so obsessively focused on the lives of the professional class and that <clears throat> it didn't leave any real room to counter Donald Trump on any of the things that he was appealing about, wh- wh- where his appeal was. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at, um, at, at where, where things really fell apart for Clinton and for Democrats on, on Tuesday night, uh, they fell apart in the Rust Belt in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, and in Wisconsin, and, and Ohio, um, which are states that, uh, you know, obviously there's a significant blue-collar industrial base there that's been really devastated by the last, not just the last, like, you know, Obama years, but like the last 30 years. Um, and those are, those are states that Obama won handily not only in 2008 in a wave election, but also in 2012. And I think uh, the Democratic Party has got to do some real thinking about why it is that, uh, you know, some states that went to, you know, a black president in a bad economy were, were unable to be won uh, it, this time around when the economy is stronger. Right. There, yeah, there was an, a, a lot of cultural argument like Trump is rude. Trump is bad for your children. Trump is racist. And and it seemed like there may have been less emphasis on economics, but even that I, I don't think could have really they changed it. People didn't like Hillary Clinton. The demo, this, it's true, but the, Hillary Clinton didn't make a case for why things like the auto bailout was good. Yeah, you know it's um, and you're right. It seemed to be mostly an effort to sort of add virtue to the Clinton brand. And and let's face it, the the fact of the matter is is that Donald Trump uh, did appeal to racists as anti semites, and he is bad for children, and all those things are true. Um, but they aren't true in a way that, you know, actually tells a person in Youngstown, Ohio, what their future is going to be. You know, it's going to be great. Oh, well, I mean, it's one, it would be cool if the future didn't involve, you know, someone shouting slurs on national television while my kids are watching, but that doesn't get my kid any, any further than that. Right. If you feel like you're already totally screwed or that, or that your situation is not improving and hasn't improved for a long period of time, then TV commercials about your kids hearing swear words are not are, are just not terribly important to you. And and I think part of the Clinton campaign's message, you know, Trump is saying make America great again all the time, right? And Clinton responded by saying America is already great. Well, if your life isn't that great, it's not. It's yeah. just not. You 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 are not going to respond to that message. And it was it was an attempt, I think I think optimistic Democrats for a long time have believed that there's this sort of emerging democratic majority which is composed of younger people brown people and sort of a sprinkling of professional class white people. Uh, and there's just more of those people than there are other people 
So they'll be able to win by just turning those people out. And what we saw on Tuesday night was that Barack Obama turns out to be a relatively unique, may, maybe a unique figure who's able to hold that coalition together. You, if you look at the exit polling data, and we'll talk about you know polling failures more generally later, so I don't want to put too much emphasis on, on, on these exit polls. But I think it's important to note that relative to Mitt Romney in 2012, Trump outperformed among Latinos and among black voters, and the turnout for black voters and Latinos was lower than it was in 2012, despite the fact that he ran his whole campaign. He started his campaign by saying Mexicans are rapists. And he ended it by disparaging Somalis. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. The um, Another thing that I think that we've been kind of uh, skeptical about uh, this whole time is the sort of like weird media debate that's taken place over whether Trump's appeal is exclusively, like his success is exclusively born on the backs of a latent racism in the United States, or if it's born on the back of economic anxiety. And I think that what we finally came around to really identifying with James Kwok, who was on our show a little bit ago, is that the problem with that debate is that we were having a debate. Both were true. Right. And and the fact that we allowed our, I don't think we did, but the fact that the media allowed themselves to lapse into that really kept their eye off of what was going on. And I think it probably badly, badly misinformed Democrats about what was happening, because I think there was just sort of like a general contentedness about Trump's obvious lack of virtue uh, being the thing that would carry the day. And Trump did a lot to demonstrate his lack of virtue. Um, like, he attacked a gold star family. Yeah, he was he's he was a scumbag. That, and that was his shtick. And he also, though, made economic arguments that were not engaged. When he talked about right. trade, while at the same time, company after company this year announced it would lay people off and open a factory in Mexico, and, like perfectly and, and, illustrating the exact point he would make. And now he actually can take us out of NAFTA and start a and, and, and hike up some tariffs and start a trade where that no one no one knows what will happen or if he'll actually do it. But this was uh, a, a policy argument that he made that didn't really get answered by I, Hillary Clinton. And I think one of the things that's really troubling about, you know, if you if you followed the Trump campaign and his economic arguments in particular, is that they're they're all over the map. One day he's talking about how he's going to close the carried interest loophole and you know stick it to Wall Street, and he's going to rip up NAFTA and the WTO, and he's going to bring all of our manufacturing jobs back. And then the next day he's talking about, you know, a $5 trillion tax cut, half of which goes to the richest 1% of people in, in the country. And clearly Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell like the second half of that, of that argument quite a bit. They do not like the first half. And it's not clear to me what, what actually happens when, when he's a president. You know, I think there, there are sort of two possible outcomes for how Democrats fare four years from now. Um, one it involves Donald Trump appointing some some doves to the Federal Reserve and following through on his pledge to spend a gazillion dollars on infrastructure spending. If he does that and the economy comes, you know, just starts roaring, then it's going to be really hard to to defeat him in 2020. If he deregulates Wall Street, you know, we're kind of you know Jamie Dimon once said that you have a financial crisis every seven years or so. We're kind of overdue for one. Yeah. If one of the if he deregula deregulates Wall Street and we have a financial <laughs> crash, then the Republican Party will be eternally discredited. Uh, I, I, economically, at least, and I, I don't know which it's which it's going to be. No, nobody knows anything. I mean, if I had to predict, my prediction would be that he shows up not as the class warrior he presented himself as, but the empty vessel who just wants to 
have everything easy again. And I think that he's going to pretty, I think he's going to be very, very accepting of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. I think he will be five digits to sign those bills into law. And then he will talk about how great America is because he's there. And that'll be that. Yeah, And, and we'll have, I think, I think we have to be, not that civil liberties have been amazing under Barack Obama, but I think we have, uh, you know, the, the area where he's going to be able to just do things, if he wants to do things that make Democrats, that used to make Democrats horrified is on civil liberties. And, uh, you know, the way people are treated in our society who do not look like Donald Trump. Yeah. I, I know I just said he made a, a coherent trade argument, but more broadly, he was incoherent. And I don't think it's possible to predict what he'll do based on the fact that he, he he's can, been on both sides of everything. What, what he did with the, the trade argument, you know, actually what he's what he has proposed for how to solve the trade problem is is kind of a mess. But he made people think that he was on their team. Yeah. And I don't think Hillary Clinton ever, ever convinced a lot of very persuadable people in the Rust Belt that she was on their team. Yep, I would say so that, too. We already have 48 hours in. I'm already having a hard time keeping up with all the hate crimes and intimidation, so that's going to have to be a topic for another day. Uh, but uh, we... They threw eggs at George W. Bush on his inauguration. Just imagine what's going to happen when people show up in Washington, D.C. wearing Pepe the Frog SS costumes. <laughs> I'll be on vacation. I, it's hard to predict even what those time. weirdos will do. Will the doxing and harassment continue or stop? You know, there's just this is a question mark now. But it's we don't not know a good anything. question mark. It's not a question we want to have to be dealing with, and we are. Right. Okay. Just want to. I think that I think just to put a button on it. I think that those of us looked at this presidential race as something where whoever was going to win, we were going to probably be talking about bad economy and government corruption. It's just that we have the option now where we're going to be talking about that whilst wading through a lake of crypto-fascist viscera. Yep. Consensus on that? Yeah, it's bad. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're off to a really roaring start on this podcast. I promise you it's very good. So please stick around. Uh, we need you more than ever. Thanks. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. So last week, one of the things that I joked about you know, during one of the segments was that after last week, there'd be no real interest in polling. And so uh, while it was great to have uh, our good pal, Ariel Edwards-Levy, on the show to talk about polling, it was going to be in, you know another three years before we had her back on. Um, but so things have changed, and uh, we're going to talk about polling again. And once again, we're here with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we're also here with Ariel Edwards-Levy. 
Puffpuss Polster. So <laughs> that happened. Quite a week. Um, so everyone's talking about it. We may as well just tear the bandaid right off. What happened with polling in this election? This is not exactly how I was looking to make my return appearance here. And I do think that as a general rule, when somebody is very confidently wrong about something for a very long time, the next day you should not trust them when they tell you why they were wrong. Because if it were very obvious, they might not have been wrong in the first place. So so to recap, the Huffington Post forecast model, what I call the poll leading machine, just like all the other ones, said Hillary Clinton was going to win. And ours said that there was a 98 point something percent chance that that was the outcome. Right, yes. And I think we made it clear that this was a projection, not a prediction, and that we were always saying that Donald Trump had the second best chance of anyone in America becoming president. Well, so 98%, I mean, did the one point something percent outcome occur or, you know, tell us about what actually was the problem. So with the forecast, there are two things. One is that that two percent, which in retrospect was way too small, was the percentage chance that the polls were really, really, really wrong. Yeah. Our model was based on polling. If the polls were going to be wrong, the model was going to be wrong. And that's essentially what happened. And so in retrospect, one of the issues is uncertainty. We know there's a margin of error with all polls. We know that there have been similar margins of error and say, national polling, especially, where we weren't really that far off from the margin. But the thing is, across national polls, state polls, everything, every single time, it broke for Donald Trump far more than pretty much anyone, public pollsters, campaign pollsters on both sides expected it to. And that's what pollsters are going to be staying up at night to figure out for the next year or two. So so I realized that we don't really know exactly what was the problem yet because it's complicated. But what are some of the leading theories on how a group of disparate polls in different states can all make the same mistake? So it turns out that the missing Trump voters that the campaign talked a lot about and that everyone sort of brushed off actually did get missed in some way. And what's not really clear yet so much is the mechanism for how that happened. You know, it could be also be a lot of things. It's possible it was a lot of different things breaking the same way. It's possible, say, that, you know, undecided voters very late swung for Trump and that didn't get caught. It's possible that um, turnout for and turnout is one of those big things, because here's the thing. There are a couple ways that you can miss this many people. One is what everyone is calling shy Trumpers or the Bradley effect, which is that people were just not admitting to pollsters. And we thought that was not a possibility. The reason I personally thought that that was not likely to happen, and I think a lot of other people thought that was not likely to happen, is we were looking at Brexit. And if you look at Brexit, we had some very clear evidence that this was about to happen because phone polls and online polls were coming back with totally different results. Online polls were consistently showing people wanted to leave, phone polls showing remain. And you could look at that and go, okay, there's something happening here. And that wasn't happening in polls for Donald Trump. Online polls, telephone polls missed by about the same amount. Yeah. So shy Trump, a.k.a. Trump shame. People might have been feeling it. But the thing is, so we did experiments like that and we said, okay, no, that's not happening. So it took a different form than that. One possibility is that they just weren't responding to polls at all. 
So and under that theory, we've always said, you know, sometimes people won't respond. I think we talked about this the last time. Sometimes people won't respond when there's bad news for their candidate. Right. And so the swings are maybe exaggerated because one person hears something bad. They don't answer a poll. That also assumed that we knew that the baseline level was at a certain point. We could have just gotten the baseline level wrong. Do you know that the problem with polling was with Trump supporters or could it have been Clinton supporters just as easily? It could have been. And that's actually a big part of it because the other thing is turnout. And the other thing that we know for sure broke is likely voter modeling. Because the thing about election polling as opposed to other surveys is – in normal surveys of the entire America and population, you have a lot of benchmarks to work with because we have a pretty good idea of what the American population looks like. You know what the age divides are, what the regional divides are, what the racial divides are. And you can say, I'm going to see if there's a huge group of people who aren't answering my surveys. When you're doing election polling, you're trying to figure out who is actually going to turn out to vote. And obviously, polls using a very wide um, variety of methodologies, didn't quite get that right. And by didn't quite, I mean really didn't. Because Democrats, certain Democrats didn't come out. Like there was low turnout. Yes. And also because in some cases, a lot of what goes into figuring out these voter models is looking at whether people voted in the past, which is usually a pretty good predictor whether they're going to vote in the future. But if you have a bunch of people who have just been sitting out elections and suddenly decide, okay, now I'm going to vote, they might just not get picked up here at all. What's interesting about that is I don't think I think there's a lot of uh, people putting doubt on the idea of the shy Trump vote. And uh, one of the things that kind of backed up that idea was that it certainly looked during the run up to the election that the Trump campaign was missing the targets that they would have preferred to have as far as voter registration went. Um, And so there was like, nevertheless, a mountain of evidence suggesting that the shy Trump phenomenon was going to be understated phenomenon. I'm more interested in the idea that maybe people just didn't want to talk to pollsters. Is there any perhaps credibility to the notion that in a campaign that stoked a base that was so anti-elite from the start that Trump voters feasting on that kind of venom toward elites might have uh, looked toward pollsters trying to contact them as shades of a similar cloth and just said, well, we'll fuck with these people. Yeah, I think in some ways that almost is more of the nightmare scenario for pollsters because likely voter models you can work on and you can improve. But the way that polling works is that it's representative. And the reason that polling has for the most part, continued to be a decent measurement, even as response rates have fallen, is that the kind of people who answer polls still look like the kind of people who don't answer polls. If that changes in an election context, that becomes a really serious problem. And, you know, you can always go back to waiting and say, okay, if we know that this group of people is far less likely to respond, maybe we just need to account for that. But To state the obvious, if there's a large group of people who are not answering your polls and who are substantively different from the people who are, that is a problem. So last question, and then we'll move on with our lives. Um, What's the next step for the polling industry, in your opinion? So we already are seeing a lot of people scrambling to figure out what's going on. Um, The polling industry is very good at self-reflection and is doing that all the time because people fundamentally want to get it right. And I think that's one of maybe the biggest misconceptions is a lot of people are going to go out there and say, oh, they were trying to rig it. They screwed it up. 
everybody has an incentive to get it right and really, really wants to do that. So there's already a task force, even before all of this happened, that was going to look at the election results. And now that's obviously taking on a lot more urgency. But I think people are going to be digging in very closely to a lot of the data that was used and trying to figure out all these theories, which one was the biggest mistakes that people made and how do we account for that if that's possible in the future. So is it possible to say that a majority of pollsters want to get it right? I think all pollsters want to get it right. I can't imagine why anybody would go into the business of measuring public opinion and have an incentive to get it wrong. I was just trying to make a joke about right. polling. Probabilistically <laughs> speaking. Yeah, like, give give me right. a week. I'll be awake and I'll be able to respond to these things. No, I'll, well, I'll have a funnier joke. <laughs> what does the world look like if if polling is broken forever? That's... Is that a scenario you've even contemplated? I mean, I think that people are very inventive in terms of the ways of measuring public opinion. I think we have more data available to us now than ever. I'm hopeful that people will figure out some way to work around whatever the issues are. Okay. Well, uh, be uh, in two years, we'll have a midterm election, and this will become important again. Uh, so best of luck. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, just so you know, uh, we're, we're all in this together here. So, uh, sorry, we got this wrong. Um, we will be right back. Hey everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. Uh, we're with Zach Carter. Hi. And Lauren Weber. Hello, hello. Uh, and I, I think we can't properly have a funereal podcast without talking about the corpse laying in the street. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> so we want to talk about Hillary Clinton's concession speech, which uh, I thought was really interesting. Um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And Lauren, you, you've been you, you wrote about it for us. What what, what do you think? Well, I mean, well, first off, I mean, we got to start from the get-go. She didn't give it till the next morning, which there was a lot of hubbubaloo about. Mm-hmm. I personally don't have a problem with it. I think that the speech itself was good enough that it was fine that it was the next day. But, I mean, we can definitely talk about why that happened. Uh, I have to imagine that it happened because the the planned event was going to be so celebratory and the results rendered pretty starkly how premature that celebration was to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a composure thing, too. I mean, I don't think I could possibly get up there and, yeah. and, and speak to that it's kind of crowd in, in a literal glass ceiling arena and talk about not. It's, all, it's also ceiling. very possible. I know that I know that campaigns uh, do write concession speeches out of tradition. I know people said maybe she didn't prepare one. I think that probably anything that had been written up the night of that was the placeholder for a concession speech was probably something so perfunctory that it probably really needed and required additional thought and care, you know. And so you take that back and you workshop it because they were living in an environment where they were pretty sure they were going to win. Uh, everyone was. 
and the uh, the the shock was such that I, I can't blame them for wanting to rethink it and rethink the whole thing. Pity for the people who I guess showed up at this thing expecting to be a celebration, but that's how. I it mean, works. that sounded like a nightmare up there. That's a chance you take anytime you walk into a political election night celebration that it's true. not going to go the way you expect it to. Yeah, I was I was thinking a little bit about Mitt Romney on the the election night uh, because he went into 2012 thoroughly believing that he was going to win. They had. They had unskewed all of their polls and convinced themselves that Republicans were going to win in 2012. And Romney gave this very quick, weird concession speech because he wasn't he hadn't prepared one. He was convinced he was going to win. And you could you would kind of you could really feel. I mean, look, Donald Trump losing the election, winning the election is a disaster for the country. Um, and the feelings of one politician do not you know, triumph over everything else that matters. But you really did have to feel for Hillary Clinton. I mean, when she was giving the speech. On Wednesday afterwards, she was you could see her tearing up at parts during it. I mean, you know, this was just a devastating loss for her emotionally. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, no matter how you slice it, half the country voted for somebody else. And it's a reflection. You know, you're, you're going to take it personally. I mean, I, I would take it personally. There was a um, reflection of everything she's ever stood for, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's it's being read as a as a read on an entire wing of the party and, yeah. of, and decades of Democratic leadership and strategy that she's been uh, a part of. Uh, you know, when she lost to Obama in 2008, there was a, I can't remember who did the reporting, but there's an interesting story where, you know, she's in the back of, of, you know, some navigator or something. And she turns to one of her aides and says, what if people just don't like me? And it's, you know, she, she wasn't talking about strategy. She wasn't talking about policy. She's like, what if people just don't like me? And I remember just thinking like, man, being a politician has got to just be horrible. It's just got to make you feel terrible all the time. Because a lot of people won't like you no matter what you do. That's a lesson that uh, probably will be a hard one for our next president to learn as well. Um, but, okay, so I think that one of the jobs that you kind of have to do whenever you lose an election is you have to both buck up the people who supported you, people who did like her. The people who did like the her. The majority, actually, the popular vote there. And, yeah, exactly. And uh, And you have to really be a part of the reconciliation. That's probably the most bitter pill to swallow because uh, as a politician, you go hard at someone for uh, so at, least, at least a year and it's expected and you don't blame them for that. Yeah, it's a tough, our, I, I believe American debates should be uh, heated and I'm cool with them even being incivil. Civility is usually a, a couch for cowards to live in. And, 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 and so I think you go Cold cards by Jason Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. Who lives in a couch? <laughs> he what? You know, my, my, what whole, my, that my, my whole sense of metaphor is destroyed. <laughs> I'm Thomas Friedmaning all my metaphors today. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Yeah, we, had to, we had to take a minute. Yeah, I was sorry. talking to my cab driver the other geez. day about cell phones. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the least equipped podcaster on this show historically. So leave that, leaving that, but leaving that aside, it, you have to play a part in sort of the reconciliation of absolutely of, of the moment and it's tough when you are uh it's it's easier to do when you are the victor and i think trump gave a very conciliatory acceptance speech he's in washington today and uh probably something that will not please a lot of his fans is that he was highly praiseworthy of barack obama and has even signaled that he will be seeking Obama's counsel, which is, I think, a thing that will surprise everyone going forward. It's probably because he's happens. like, oh, my God, I'm president. <laughs> this is going to be a ride. Yeah, here. but but the burden the burden fell to Clinton to actually suck it up and be a conciliatory person. 
You know, the, the, well, but, it's, it's the foundation of democracy. If she's yeah. not, I mean, it, this is literally the bedrock of our country, which I think she got across in, in so many Well, here, words. let's let's take a listen to uh, to some of the more poignant moments from Clinton's speech. Uh, here's one where she's talking about uh, about the glass ceiling. I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. Pretty intense stuff. I mean... This was supposed to be the first woman president, and it looked like a lock, you know, two hours before the polls closed. Not just, I mean, to to everyone, there were uh, around 7 p.m. election night, there were reports that uh, Trump aides, inner circle people, were disconsolate about what was happening. Uh, They obviously had a major reversal of fortunes, but yeah, it did look like a lock. I mean, my favorite part of her speech, honestly, was... uh... Besides the fact that I really did appreciate her constant reminders that we all need to be a better America for everyone, which was just code for we can't, you know, ban Muslims and do things that exclude Burn all black people. churches. Yeah, do, do, do things like that. Let's take a listen to that. But I want you to remember this. Our campaign was never about one person or even one election. It was about the country we love and about building an America that's hopeful inclusive and big hearted. But anyways, what I was saying is my favorite, my favorite part is I think when she, she kind of gave this missive that, the, you know, the dream will not die, so to speak, you know, both for women and for the democratic party and for what her campaign stood for. I, that, that was my favorite takeaway from the speech. What about you guys? Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, it wasn't quite, uh, like Ted Kennedy, 1980. No, I mean, she's never, she's Um, never going to, she's just not that good of a speaker. I mean, she's not, but you know, but I thought it was one of the best ones she'd given. She had to thread this, this needle where, where she was both being conciliatory and trying to secure a peaceful transition of power to someone who is terrible, who ran an entire campaign centered around bigoted reprisals. (laughs) And she, so she had to both denounce the, that. De- denounce Trump and also say that that we should let him be president, which is a hard thing to do. And I, I thought she I thought she pulled it off. Um, and she also had stuff to say to uh, to little girls uh, who had been perhaps part of her fan base and put, put a lot of faith in her. I think we have that sound, too. We should listen to that. And to all the little girls who are watching this. Never doubt that you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in the world to pursue and achieve your own dreams. Uh, You know, it's something we've talked about on this podcast before, that Hillary Clinton, for all of her imperfections— and they're numerous, and I believe that we—I I don't believe we failed to— We've chronicled many of them. We've, we've pointed many, many of them out. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, uh, the, 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 the inspirational aspect of her character among women and little girls is real. Is real. Um, because it's been very difficult for women to grow up thinking that they were going to have access to the— kinds of station, the station in our society that men have had for such a long time. Uh, Clinton came really, really close on two occasions now to being president. She's paved a lot of distance between, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and today. People forget that in 2008, she actually won more votes in the primary than Barack Obama did. 
Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, look, I was born in 1991. Let's not date ourselves, but I was. But I've grown up in an era in which Hillary Clinton was always a politician and, you know, someone who was in a position of power as a woman. And that's just you can't even measure that, really. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty hopeful and confident at some point, maybe in our lifetimes, we'll have a, a woman president. It's kind of actually unusual that the United States has has, not. has failed to do this. Uh, we've had women heads of states all over the world, um, even in places where you don't really think of maybe there being as many opportunities for women as we promised them here in the United States. Um, it's it is a deficit, I think, in our in our culture that we've never succeeded in uh, putting a woman atop our our tower of power, but. It's for another day, I'm afraid. It's for another day. Maybe one day soon, but it's for another day. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> on that note, on that note, uh, we will uh, also have podcasts on another day. We want to thank you for listening to this one, and we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined, as I often am, by my brother-in-arms, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And a frequent guest of the show, you all are probably familiar with by now, is Akbar Ahmed. Hi. So we're going to talk about Akbar's coverage of the war in Yemen, which is happening. A lot of people don't know that it's actually happening, uh, including some perhaps very prominent politicians. Where is Yemen? <laughs> Yemen is next to Saudi Arabia. It's right. on the Arabian Peninsula. It's a relatively small country, and there has been a very violent uh, civil war, essentially, that's going on in Yemen, uh, fought by uh, proxies of Iran mm -hmm. and also Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the United States has been backing Saudi Arabia in this mm -hmm. for several years. So, Akbar, uh, something happened in April of this year that you wrote about um, with the U.S. commitment to this war. What what happened? So. The U.S. was involved in the war about a year before Obama went to Saudi Arabia in April. Um, and that was this big moment where, post-Iran deal, he's been trying to shore up support among traditional Arab partners of the U.S., particularly the Saudis, but also Bahrain, Qatar, UAE, all of them. And what happened was Obama went, people talked about his relation with the Saudis being bad. And what people miss is that he's on a rhetorical front criticized the Saudis publicly. I mean, he said to Tom Friedman... The biggest threat to your kingdom is not Iran. It is your internal problems and your inability to deal with your youth. Um, by that point, Obama had enabled war crimes to the tune of thousands of deaths for over a year. right? And, and I wrote about it and I said, don't give him a free pass. Because a lot of people say Obama's tough on the Saudis. He got the Iran deal. He's gotten these things at the price of enabling their worst instincts, helping them to feel threatened, and then saying... While you're threatened, I will give you every advanced fiscade bomb, you know, weapon, whatever. Yeah, describe how we're helping yeah, the Saudis um, in Yemen. So in Yemen, there's three ways. Uh, Obama has sold more weapons to the Saudis than any other president. Um, he's sold bombs, planes, tanks. So it's, it's our bombs. It's mostly American. Some are French, some are British. Uh, a few are Russian as well, but mostly American. And Obama has approved all these arms transfers, including something like Four major transfers since the war began. This is a war now that has killed over 10,000 people, the majority of them through the Saudi-led coalition. 
He also does aerial refueling, which is this really interesting thing the administration downplays, to fly over Yemen and bomb poor Yemenis in the poorest country in the Arab world. Uh, you have to obviously leave Saudi Arabia, and you can stay in the air longer if you can be refueled aerial. Right. If the U.S. was not sending these tanker planes to refuel Saudi jets, they would have maybe 10 minutes, five minutes to bomb. Right now, they have like four to six hours over various Yemeni cities and so Regions. the Washington Post also reported earlier this year that uh, there, there had been uh, canisters of American white phosphorus that were found in in Yemen. Uh, white phosphorus is legal under uh, under, you know, the Geneva yeah. Convention if, if it's used as like something that creates smoke. But it's often deployed as a weapon against civilians that just melts people's skin off. It's it's de- oh, it's de- a war crime deployed that way. It's it's, yeah. it's a war crime. And that stuff is is happening right now. So uh, Obama made this big talk. Right? right. What what has happened since then? Uh, nothing. I mean, he's continued uh, in October of last year of uh, sorry, this year, a few weeks ago, now, like a month. It seems like time is just nuts. But uh, a month ago, Obama said, uh, we are reviewing our policy in Yemen. We recognize because the Saudis bombed a funeral. They killed 140 people, uh, injured hundreds more. And then the White House said, we are reviewing. And I did a piece. I talked to the White House. I talked to everyone on the Hill and around, you know, the U.S. working on Yemen. There is no evidence they're doing a review. They are not reviewing this support. And I think a lot of people on the Obama foreign policy team anticipate a President Hillary Clinton who would know how to deal with the Saudis, would know how to negotiate the situation. Uh, instead, we have a president, Donald Trump. And I think the Obama team is going to feel really bad. They're eating crow because they said, we are passing off this crisis, which is a really thorny thing between two mm-hmm. friends, onto someone we trust. Now they're passing it on to someone whose policy they don't know. This war we're supporting, it seems, gets a, a very, very little attention you don't. You, there are starving children there, but we mm-hmm. hear about starving children in Aleppo. Yeah, and it's so it's it's not in the news at all. Has Donald Trump ever mentioned it? I don't know if he has talked about it. And it's a bit of a it's a confusing thing to know what he would do that because for all his rhetoric, uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric, and he has he's said a lot of things. I mean, he's accused Saudi Arabia of doing nine eleven. He has accused Saudi Arabia of throwing gates off buildings, which they don't. ISIS does. And that's an important distinction. He has privately, uh, for months, been going to diplomats from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, all Jordan, Turkey, all these Muslim-majority countries, and saying, don't listen to what I say in public. It doesn't matter. And his team has been courting them, saying, we like strong men. We like these relationships. Uh, this was reported by a friend of mine, Joyce Karam, at uh, Arab News. And it's a really interesting relationship he's building, because he's basically saying, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I don't really care because, yeah. So so while on the one hand, he likes to say, I'm not into these dumb wars and yeah. entanglements in the Middle East that have no apparent benefit for us domestically. On the other hand, he's all for it, according to these meetings that his uh, subordinates are having. I think it's it depends on how big the U.S. footprint is. Um, and, and in a way, I do think some of Obama's foreign policy bleeds really well into a Trump worldview. This idea Obama had of, we want our partners to take responsibility for what they're doing, and the U.S. doesn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. That means even if your partner wants to starve children, bomb funerals, and generally commit millions of war crimes, you say, okay, well, it, you're our partner. It bleeds well. 
So uh, there, there are people who are paying attention to this in the United States who are in positions of political mm-hmm. power, um, including a, a particular congressman, I believe, who yeah. uh, who you've written about. Uh, Ted Lieu, a Democrat of California. He's the ho- president of the House of Freshman Democratic Class or something. He's quite, uh, quite an interesting young Democrat and former military lawyer. He believes the U.S. is committing war crimes. Uh, there's been reporting saying that Obama administration lawyers have already judged that they believe the U.S. The U.S. officials might be liable for war crimes for their role in this war. Um, we were expecting that when Congress comes back next week, they would move forward on something around this, uh, something like blocking another arms sale. In September, the Senate voted on an arms sale of tanks to resupply the Saudis in Yemen. The vote went through, but they lost 27 votes. 27 senators did vote and say, we don't want to send tanks while they're in Yemen. That's big for the Saudis. They were they were really surprised they lost mm. that many people. So, uh, you know, b- before we before we have to wrap, how does this fit into the the sort of broader U.S. approach to Saudi Arabia and, and Iran? Because Iran and Saudi Arabia have, I mean, a lot of what happens in the Middle East is just proxy wars between these two countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've had uh, se- uh, Senator uh, uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut okay. has, has called to reset and, and rethink right. uh, the relationship with Saudi Arabia. What how how does this fit into the the bigger picture? Um. I think speculation's hard, but I, I would say that Senator Murphy and a lot of people are feeling that that conversation is a bit dead now because Trump has expressed a traditionally wary view of Iran. He is really critical of Iran, and he would not want any kind of opening there. He seems to be someone who still thinks in terms of Jimmy Carter, embassy crisis, Iranian revolution, and I don't think that, that the conversation we've been having, whether it was just a bit of a semi-opening to Iran, think that's a bit so so very broadly the whole reason we're doing this is is part of a broader effort to just maintain some stability and contain iran and contain Uh, iran yeah and and i think that that priority will remain for trump administration i think he really has a lot of problems with the saudis but he does business with them you know he's got deals he has relationships with the family uh i think he would be on their side given his strongman inclinations all right well akbar thanks so much for joining us thank you and we'll be right back Not to be obvious, but that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by a slew of Huffington Post reporters, including Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ariel Edwards-Levy, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends about them. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and best of luck to you all. Thank you.